for those of you who missed last week, we talked about how Jude is writing this pastoral letter to this church or churches, um, and they are experiencing some problems, specifically having to deal with false teaching in the church. And he laid, uh, Nick did such a great job laying that out for us, the, the, um, the message um, that Jude is trying to get across there, that, um, that he wants them to, the, the church to contend for the faith that once for all was once for all delivered to the saints because certain people had crept in, Nick called them antinomian creepers, uh, people who had come into the church and they are beginning to do some things and say some things that are getting the church off track. So we are going to continue uh, this morning in Jude 5 through 10. And I want to pray for us before we begin. Lord Jesus, we honor you this morning in and among your church, Lord. We are so grateful to be here, uh, Lord, to get to hear what you have to say, to get to respond to you in worship. Lord, I just think about uh, the video that we just saw with, with our teens um, worshiping you, Lord, with their hearts and soul, their mind and their strength. Lord, what an encouragement that is to us. Lord, we pray that you would revive our church, Lord, that you would cause new growth to happen in our hearts. Lord, we pray that you would help us to see the role of our church in the church at large. And God, um, help us to fulfill the, the part that you have commissioned us to play. Now, Jesus, we pray that you would, um, that you would silence the mouth of the enemy this morning and that you would help your people to hear clearly what you have to say from your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so when I, some of you guys have seen me uh, wearing my, my blue Florida State jacket around before, um, I love that jacket, it's super comfortable. I got that jacket when I was uh, working in between my, my two degrees, um, that's what a Florida State degree will do for you, right, you become a janitor, um, just, just kidding, sorry Florida State, Ugh. Anyway, but, but I, I worked uh, as, as a night janitor, as, as a group of a team of people who would clean libraries, okay? So we'd go through and clean the graffiti off of the bathroom walls and that sort of thing. Um, so I definitely wanted to get a different job after, after that. But um, uh, while I was there, it was a weird, weird thing because um, the, the team that would go through, they would, they would clean steadily from like 11 o'clock until about 3 o'clock. And then everybody would basically finish their job and they would sit down somewhere or they would lay down somewhere and they would just nap, like from like three o'clock until the end of the shift. I was like, this is the weirdest job I've ever been in. Uh, because when I, when I worked at Publix many moons ago, man, if you, if, you, if you were standing still, somebody, a front end manager was gonna come and find you. They were gonna come and find you something to do. So I was like, this is the strangest work environment I've ever been in. So I tried to busy myself and, and find things to do. But, you know, after a while, I, I, I was tired too. So, so I, I, I lay down and I, I put my head down on that study, study desk. Jesus, forgive me for doing it. Uh, but but I, I just lay down and, and took a nap. And I just, kept, I just kept thinking as I was getting ready for this message, like how mortified I would be if a supervisor had come through and been like, hey, what you doing? Looks like you're sleeping. You should be up, working, cleaning things in this library because that's what we're paying you to do, right? I would have been so mortified. But that is what has happened in this church or churches that Jude is talking to. They have kind of gotten a little sleepy. Those eyelids have started to close some, and they have, have become short-sighted at identifying false teachers. 
they become comfortable having people in their midst who are rebelling against God openly and encouraging other people to do so. So I was trying to think in my mind, and this is, this is not in Scripture, but just based on my own life and, and uh, dealings with other people, why is it that maybe this, this church has become sleepy? We're not told in, the, in this passage, but just kind of theorizing and thinking about it through Scripture. Number one, perhaps they fear man rather than fearing God. That's easy for it to happen to us, for us to become more concerned about what people think and less concerned about what God thinks. Uh, John, verses uh, 12, excuse me, chapter 12, verses 42 through 43 records this. It says, Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Man, what a terrible thing to have said about you in Scripture. I hope that is never on my tombstone. He loved the glory that comes from man rather than the glory that comes from God. May that never be said about us as a church. We need Jesus to refine us and cause us to fear him rather than to fear man. So there's, there's one reason I came up with. Maybe another reason is this. Perhaps they don't love people enough to confront them. We don't love people perfectly, and sometimes that manifests itself in this way, right? Um, Proverbs has become my favorite book of mine since I started doing counseling. Um, Proverbs 27, verse 5 says this, Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Man, that scripture just makes me wince every time I read it. It's so tough. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. In other words, love means that sometimes you're going to have to confront someone openly in their sin rather than loving them from afar by kind of hiding out and watching them continue to destroy themselves and others. Uh, sometimes we see this in parenting as well. Proverbs 13, 24 says, Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Sometimes we fail our kids by failing to discipline them. We don't love them the way that we should. If we love our kids, we have to confront them and help them to grow in their relationship with the Lord and to, and to grow up in general. And we should do that in a loving way that shows that they are loved by us and loved by God and we're not trying to get back at them. But we need to confront and discipline with our kids. All right, reason number three I kind of came up with here. Perhaps they don't speak up because their faith is slowly being eroded Let's look at 2 Corinthians 11.4 for an example of this. In the Corinthian church, Paul is confronting this. He says, For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. We can certainly see examples of that in our culture. Amen? And in the church at large, we put up with a lot of things that we should not put up with. And apparently in this church that Jude is writing to, hearing this teaching again and again has produced a kind of soft compliance and tolerance for things that they should not tolerate in their midst. So God is going to issue a series of wake-up calls. I've got two wake-up calls I want to talk about this morning. As he is inspiring Jude to write... In verse 5, 
he begins the first wake-up call. And if you're taking notes, first wake-up call is this. God has judged in the past. God has judged in the past. Now, as a culture, we don't like the idea of judgment in general. We don't like the idea of someone standing over us and judging us. And we apply that to God uh, in our culture. We, we say, how could a loving God send anyone to hell? And yet with our mouths that God formed and the breath that he gives us, we judge and condemn him for saying that in his word. Who are we to judge God, Romans 9 tells us. Haven't our minds been corrupted by sin so that we fail to see him apart from his word? We need corrective lenses. You'll notice that I'm wearing a set this morning. It would not be good for me to drive on the roads. You would want to stay off of the roads if I was driving without these corrective lenses on my face because I would not judge things appropriately, right? The distance and like whether or not you were a car or a person, that, that's the level, of, that's the level of, of eyesight I have, right? I can't tell. Um, but we need God's word as a corrective lens to help us to see him as he is. Otherwise, we are seeing him incorrectly. We are judging him instead of allowing his word to judge us. God is all wise and he is morally perfect so that the judgments that he makes are always correct. Revelations 19.2 says that his judgments are true and just. Many times when you think about it, our judgments of others would not be based on what is right and righteous, but they would be based on what offends us personally, right? Um, but thankfully, and I'll, I'll borrow a, a phrase from my friend Daniel Pinnell here, but God is the adult in the room. God is the one who stands over us and says, no, I'm going to make the right judgments in this situation. So God is the judge. He is the one who has judged in the past. All right, so he's going to, Jude is laying out three judgments for us, the first of which we find in verse 5. Yes, we're finally going to get to our passage. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, there's, there's Jude knocking, right? You fully knew it that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. So we're told in the book of Numbers, which our ladies uh, just read this past year, um, that uh, when they were led up to the border of the promised land, God's people sent 12 spies into the land, one for each of the 12 tribes. Two of them came back with a, with a report that was full of faith about the land. They said, yes, the people are big, and yet God is faithful. He's going to give us the strength to take this land, to do what we should, uh, and to fulfill the word that he gave to us. God is faithful. And there were another 10 spies that came back and said, I don't know, the obstacles here are really big. We may need to, to do a little risk assessment here and just kind of say, you know what, let's let this one pass. Maybe there'll be another promised land that doesn't have quite so many big people in it uh, that maybe God will lead us to and, and that could come along to us. They acted in unbelief. They did not trust God in spite of all of the ways in which he had saved them through the years. He had brought them out of Egypt. He had led a million plus people across the desert and provided for their needs daily. And yet they acted in unbelief. 
as a result, that generation was consigned to follow Moses around in the desert for 40 years until they all died off except for Joshua and Caleb, those two faithful spies. So believing is a huge part of what it means to be a Christian to begin with. I mean, when you think about the word Christian only appears three times in the New Testament. Did you know that? Only three times. And two of those times come from the mouths of pagans who don't even believe, who don't even trust uh, in Jesus. Um, rather, the, the New Testament speaks of us as the elect. God chooses people for himself. He calls people to himself. He talks about us as disciples, those who are learning from Jesus, who are growing to become more like our master. And he also describes us as believers. That's one of the key terms that's used to describe what Christians are, is believers. Look at John 5.24. It says it so clearly and relates it so well. It says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. We see those ideas of judgment and the fact that we have, when we place our trust in Jesus and in his salvation, he saves us by his grace. And we have that faith as a work of grace in our lives to begin with. But we have to exercise that faith by placing our trust in him. So as Martin Luther tells us so wisely, all of life, all of the Christian life is of faith and repentance. We need to practice that daily. So Israel is judged for unbelief. Let's look at the second judgment. It has to do with angels. Verse 6, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So we're talking about angels who have fallen who left the places that God assigned them. Now, we're given very little information about the fall of Satan and his demons. Uh, we, get some, we get some clues throughout Scripture. There's Revelation 12.4 that talks about how the dragon swept a third of the stars from the sky. Those represent angels. We, uh, we've got uh, Jesus talking about uh, how he saw Satan fall like lightning in Luke 10.18. And then we've got an extended passage in Isaiah 14 that we think may be an allusion to um, uh, Satan uh, falling from heaven. But we don't have a clear narrative that is laid out for us in Scripture. So what is Jude's source for this information? Um, likely it, it comes from Jewish tradition and a book called First Enoch. So First Enoch is one of a collection of books that is written down uh, during the time of the Old Testament and during the intertestamental period, somewhere in between the writing of Chronicles, which is likely the last book of the Bible written in the Old Testament, and the New Testament. And that, book of, uh, that, that collection of books we call the Pseudepigrapha. It comes from two Greek words. Uh, one is pseudo, meaning false, and grapho, meaning writings. So they are um, falsely attributed writings. We don't believe that Enoch actually, the, the biblical character Enoch actually wrote everything uh, in Enoch down for us. So they are, these books are not authoritative, but sometimes they give us a valuable glimpse into what Jewish thought was at that time. So we understand a little bit more of the background of the environment in which the Bible was written. So the big question then here is why a book 
in our, why is a book in our Bible, which is authoritative, the book of Jude, quoting a book that is not authoritative? Well, Jude quotes these stories as if they are authoritative. So he's not just kind of talking about them like they're fairy tales. He's talking about specific situations that he's saying, he's, he's quoting as if, them as if they were, really happened. And he's going to do this in verse 9, and he's going to do this in verse 11, and he's going to do it in verses 14 through 15. Now, why did he do this? He's making my life really hard this morning. Does this, does this mean that these books should actually be in, my, in our Bible? These are questions that I have, and I'm rolling around in my head as, as we're reading this. Some of our early church fathers entertained this possibility. They said, you know what? Jude mentions these books. Maybe they should be a part of our Bible. Or did Jude get it wrong, God forbid, which introduces an entirely different issue. We don't want to tackle that. So let's start with what we know before I get fired by the elders, okay? All right, number one, Jude's readers are familiar with these books, okay? They're a part of the landscape um, around them, and so people understand these traditions and these, these extra books. And sometimes Paul or other biblical authors will quote things that are outside of the canon. Actually, the, uh, Paul is famous for quoting um, Greek poets in Acts 17 and in Titus 1. He quotes some of the, uh, the, the, the uh, poets from the culture of the world around him. He's, he's communicating the gospel clearly to his audience because they understand um, those stories. That doesn't mean that we add those writers to our canon and say, Epimenides, Eridus, you should be a part of, 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 our, of our Bible. But they are there because in common grace, they got something right. It aligns with what our Bible says. So Jude is stating particular information as authoritative. He's not validating the entire content of these extra books. Um, so we don't have to take first Enoch hook, line, and sinker, but sometimes, again, Jewish tradition may get a few things right that aren't otherwise written down in our Bible. The old saying goes, even a blind chicken finds a kernel of corn now and then, right? So they're also going to get some things wrong, which we'd really see if we did a study of the book of Enoch, which I'm very grateful we're not doing this morning. Um, so let's stay in the Bible. Um, so Augustine has a great quote, and, he, and I'm going to summarize what he says for you, because otherwise um, you'd, you'd, we'd have to pay the nursery workers back there for an extra hour of work. Um, but um, Augustine says in the city of God, he basically says that when, when Jude says that Michael debates with the devil over the body of Moses, which we're going to see in just a minute, we can assume that he is correct in his factual information of what's going on there. When he says that uh, Enoch says these things in verses uh, 14 through 15, we can assume that at least that part of what is being said is correct. So, Thankfully, Jude's quotes don't add anything doctrinally um, to the message of the Bible. They are simply there serving as examples. So we don't have to freak out about the fact that um, these, uh, these extra books are being quoted in, their, in our Bible. So Jude's use of these stories is authoritative, even if the Jewish tradition they come from is flawed and not authoritative scripture. So... Back to our passage here. Jude tells us about punishing the angels that deserted their positions of authority. Like humanity, God placed these angels in a position of authority to do some of his work. And yet they deserted those positions. They rebelled against him. And it's interesting here, there's some wordplay in this verse. 
there's a Greek verb called tereo, and one of the, one of the, uh, the ways that we translated it, that is kept, to keep something. And so we see uh, here in verse 6 that the angels who did not stay or keep their positions, that's that Greek verb behind stay, uh, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness. And so you see here that Jude really is an artist with words. We're going to see that even more so um, next week. Um, but God keeps those who, in chains who have not kept their positions. And in both of these actions, God gives something, or excuse me, God gives something wonderful to these people or to these angels, and they, yet they walk away from God's clear and gracious work on their behalf. And this is what we call apostasy. Apostasy. And we all know people who have seemed to be believers. Perhaps we even share the gospel with each other and serve faithfully, at our church, who are always there when the doors open, and yet something happens in their life when they withdraw from the fellowship and even later say, I don't believe that stuff anymore. And man, that hurts. It's so painful when that happens to us, especially if there's someone who's close to us. It just feels like the bottom has dropped out of your life. You feel like you're in a free fall for a second, just going, how could this possibly happen? And yet the Bible tells us that it's going to happen so that we will not be surprised. Um, this is why there are warning passages here, like in Jude 5 through 7, that function like warning signs and guardrails on a mountainous road. Those of you who have traveled uh, the Blue Ridge Parkway know what I'm talking about. And I remember my, my, uh, my parents driving along that Blue Ridge Parkway, and it just seemed like those guardrails were like nothing, right? Like there was nothing like in between me and just careening off of the side of the mountain. So freaky, especially for someone who's scared of heights. I'm like a little, you know, skittish about this. Just kidding. Um, but, um, but there are guardrails that are there. They remind us that there is real danger and that some people are going to walk away and never return. 1 John 2, 19 describes this. It says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. So 1 John tells us that they go out so that we can see that they are not of us. They weren't of us to begin with. And it's for our benefit that this is made clear to us. So that's the story of, of the angels that have been judged. There's another judgment that's talked about here in verse 7. Sodom and Gomorrah are, are judged for indulging in sexual immorality. Look at verse 7 with me. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So Sodom and Gomorrah... If, as, as, we, as we hear in the, in the Bible story in, in Genesis, were destroyed by fire from heaven for their sexual immorality, which included rape and homosexuality. Now, some who support an LGBTQ agenda are, are going to push back on my reading of that verse and say, isn't the attempted rape that's being described in Genesis what's being singled out for punishment here? But Jude is very specific in his language. When, he's, when he uses uh, what we translate here as um, 
oh, sorry, let me get to it again here. Pursuing unnatural desire. That, that word literally, those words literally mean different flesh. They pursued a different flesh. God assigned them someone to pursue. A man was supposed to pursue a woman. A woman was supposed to pursue a man. And they stepped outside of that good design into something that God did not want them to be. So, and we see, obviously we see lots of examples of this being glorified in our culture today. Not a popular message from Jude um, verse 7. So, what should we say um, about this? The Bible clearly gives us um, information that tells us the, the New Testament's position on this. And the Old Testament as well. Um, Romans 1, 26 through 27. Um, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10. And 1 Timothy 1.10 all talk about the prohibition against homosexuality. Not singling that out as the only sexual sin there is out there, but it is a specific one that the Bible does talk about. So what should we say if we are experiencing these desires and they feel natural to us? We may ask the question or be tempted to ask the question, has God given these desires to us? The Bible has an answer for that. Look at James 1, 13 through 15 with me. James says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to death, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So did you see where James came out there? He didn't locate the blame on God for the fact that this person has these desires that are contrary to what God wants him to pursue. Instead, James puts it back on humanity. Humanity is sinful. God doesn't give us a desire only to turn around and condemn us when we seek it, when we follow it out. No, this temptation is there by our own desire. And we may not have consciously, initially chosen that temptation to happen in our minds, but it is a part of our sin nature. If you need to be reminded of what that's all about, you can uh, see uh, Daniel's excellent sermon on Romans 5 from our Romans series. Look that up on the website or on the app, rather. Um, so we may not have consciously chosen. It is part of our sin nature. And we need to remember that we are sinners who, by birth, have sinful desires. And we as sinners will recast morality and reality around us in order to get what we want. And this is not just those people out there. This is us here as well. We do the same thing. And so because of that, when we approach Scripture, we're going to hear that age-old question ring in our heads from Genesis, right? Did God really say did he really say you shouldn't do that? Or is the problem with the way that you're reading it? No, God really did say. So what do we do then if we are tempted by sexual immorality? The Bible has a very clear answer for us there, found in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18. It says, we flee. We flee. We flee sexual immorality. We run from sin. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. We can run to the Lord. We can turn to him. We can ask Jesus to bear our grief 
and our sorrow as we struggle with sin. Isaiah 53, 4 describes him as the one who bore all of our griefs and our sorrows. And we can present ourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and our members, our body to him as slaves of righteousness. Romans 6, 12 through 13. I think about something that happened during my dad's pastorate in East Georgia. We lived over there for four years. It seemed like God did a lot there uh, when we were there, but he was pastoring a little tiny Baptist church over there near the, the border of South Carolina. And there was a man in, <clears throat> in, that, um, in that town who was notorious as the town drunk. And he, he, and he was not only a drunk, he was a mean drunk. He brutalized his family. And, uh, and I remember dad telling me the story of how God saved him. He, uh, my dad was able to lead him to Jesus. And, uh, and this man's life changed. And his family changed. His family forgave him for the things that he had done. And, uh, and, and this man's life was restored. But he talked to him some about that continuing temptation to drink in excess and to get drunk. And he said, those temptations haven't gone away, Pastor. They continue to hit me day by day. He said, well, what do you do? What do you do when you get hit with those temptations? So I open my Bible, and I just read it. And I keep reading it until that temptation goes away. It's a brilliant example, isn't it, of what God does for us. He gives us the courage to run to him. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. We can trust in him. He said sometimes it'll... He said sometimes he read till two and three in the morning, but God was always faithful to deliver him from that. It's awesome. Love it. So we ask God to give us a desire for him that is greater than our desire for sin. Remember Matthew 6, 33 tells us to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, right? That's what he wants us to do. And we put off the old way of flesh and we put on the new, Ephesians chapter four. So, God gives us a way of escape. He gives us a way of seeking him in spite of the fact that we may be tempted to do things that are against his desires and his design. The inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah walked away from God's good plans for marriage and sexuality, and they grabbed onto whatever their sinful flesh craved. God judged them, and he made them an example. It's an example that's talked about all throughout the Bible. People are always quoting that passage. So God judged them, made them an example. Now we as a society have lost our fundamental belief in a judgment in life to come. So many of the murderers who have taken lives in schools, homes, churches, shopping malls, wherever, then try to take their own lives afterwards. As if death is some kind of escape from justice. Now, this might be true if, as materialists say, we simply dematerialize into nothingness and our consciousness simply ceases to be. But the Bible tells us that is not true. The Bible teaches about a conscious, eternal punishment in a place called hell. Now, I want to push on you for just a second here. The, the words hell and damn are good words when they're used to describe God's just punishment of those who rebel against him. But when we use them flippantly, as if they don't matter, 
I wonder sometimes if we are using language to erode the seriousness of the judgment that is to come. It's something that should, should give us pause when we think about those words. So in conclusion of this section, I want to say, God will judge those who rebel against him in apostasy. Those who walk away from God will be judged. Sometimes people who are walking away, who are kind of in that process of walking away from God, will even use grace as a cover-up for their sin. Uh, Nick talked about this last week as he went over uh, Jude 3 and 4, that they will begin to say, what I'm doing is fine. I'm saved by grace. It's under the blood. I can do whatever I want to do, which is why we should stay close to Jesus and why we should exhort one another daily. Hebrews 3.13 tells us to do this so that our heart will not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. This is part of why we want to be involved in small groups. So we've got other people in our lives who are speaking into us and reminding him, us of the truth of the gospel. All right, so I'm on to wake-up call number two now. Wake-up call number two is this. The false teachers are engaged in the same things that people were judged for in the past. The false teachers are engaged in the same thing that people were judged for in the past. We see this at the beginning of verse 8. He says, yet in like manner, these people also, again, Jude can't even bear to say their names. He said, these people over here. Um, I'm sorry, you guys, I don't mean like you. Uh, (laughs) These people um, frustrate me so much. These people you have allowed to creep in are doing the same things. He says that they, these people, also relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. So the ESV translates this, translate this as these people are relying on their dreams. It can, some of your Bibles will also say that they are dreamers. Now, they claim revelation of some kind through dreams. That's part of what they're saying is authoritative. So they're coming to, uh, to their friends and they're saying, look, I had this dream that God gave me. And he said that it's okay for me to do these things. It's okay for me to pursue homosexual desire. It's okay for me to pursue this other sin over here. I'm allowed to do these things. God has given me this information. Maybe it wasn't in the rest of the Bible, but he's given me this special information. Now, there's nothing wrong with God speaking to us through dreams, of course. We see that um, throughout the biblical record. We see that in Genesis, how God speaks to Joseph and he gives him uh, this dream of what's going to happen. Uh, we see this also in, with, in the New Testament with the other Joseph, Jesus' stepdad, who, um, who uh, has dreams in which angels speak to him and say, look, you need to get out of Dodge. You need to go to Egypt to protect the life of, of Jesus and of Mary. And then when, in Acts 2, we're told that, this is, that dreams are one of the thing, ways in which the Holy Spirit is going to speak to people as the Holy Spirit is uh, poured out on all flesh. But... Deuteronomy 13 also tells us to be cautious because people can claim revelation about God to entice us away from the faith and into idolatry. And that's exactly what's happening in this church. So Jude is calling them out on this situation. We need to make sure that we are holding fast to Scripture. It reveals to us everything that we need to know about God in order to serve him. 2 Timothy 3.17 says that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. 
There is nothing that you need to do in this life. There is no command from God that you need to follow that is not right here. This is what God, this is what God demands of us and commands us to do. We find that in the Bible. So we're going to rely on the Bible to help us to see what we need to do in this life. So no dream that, that claims some sort of additional revelation about God comes from God. So I think we've covered pretty well um, the other things in verse 8 about um, them defiling the flesh and rejecting authority. But what is meant by blaspheming the glorious ones? Who are these glorious ones and what does it mean to blaspheme them? Well, he's going to talk a little bit more that, about that in verses 9 through 10. Let's read verse 9. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Oh, man, here we go. Back down in the rabbit hole again. Um, so once again, we don't find this story in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 34, verse 6, records um, for us what happens to Moses when he dies. He is on top of a mountain, and God, it is, we're told in that passage, buries him in the land of Moab, and no one knows where Moses is buried as, as a result. Uh, between on here, lost to history, um, to this passage, would kind of understand this. So this wouldn't be, be as surprising and jarring to, to them as it is to us. But in the story, Moses is being accused by the devil who is threatening to take his body. And then Michael is standing in opposition to him. And he wants to see, along with God's purposes, to, to see Moses have a proper burial and not be defiled. Um, but So Michael is in this situation where he could speak out on his own. He probably has a few choice words that he would like to say to the devil after all of the things that the devil has been doing to oppose um, the angels of God throughout history. Um, so understand instinctively. So they are acting like a spiritual authority unto themselves. And they're speaking against all kinds of spiritual beings. And it's part of how they're gaining influence among the believers. The other believers are going... Man, these guys have the authority to speak to all kinds. They're saying all kinds of things to these spiritual beings. These guys must be real spiritual heavyweights to be able to do this. This is amazing. But, but Scripture tells us that instead of becoming more like Jesus, these people are, are downgrading. They are becoming more like unreasoning animals. And their abuse of spiritual things is actually destroying them, destroying their minds. Their blasphemy is eroding any trust they might have in God's truth. Now, just as a side note here, God used angels to put the law of his covenant in place. We see this in Galatians 3.19. We don't often think of the angels being involved uh, with, with the process of, of the writing of scripture, but God used them in some sort of uh, in-between way there. And so this may actually be a reference to um, the idea that these false teachers are speaking against the word of God as well. So maybe that's part of their blasphemy. All right, so how am, I, how am I going to apply all of this stuff, right? We've got, we've got WWF fight going on between um, the devil and Michael. We've got all sorts of weird extra-canonical literature being talked about. Please, professor, get me to the gospel, right? All right, so let's apply this for a moment. <clears throat> Number one, first thing I, I need to say is that warnings about false teachers are part of how the Lord keeps his church from stumbling 
and presents them as blameless. In a few weeks, Daniel's going to get to preach that wonderful doxology at the end of Jude that's probably the only part of Jude that we really know and read all of the time. Um, But we need to understand that apart from the continual work of the Holy Spirit, our faith would be shipwrecked. Did you know that? Your faith would be shipwrecked apart from God continuing to step in and keep you from sin and foolishness. Jesus has not left us on our own. He has sent the Holy Spirit to indwell us. And the Spirit has not only inspired Scripture, but he does some other things. I've got a little, a little quick Bible study for you. This is not exhaustive. <clears throat> you guys will get that slide up for me. Thanks. It says, in a, in a believer's life, the Holy Spirit does a number of things. The Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. It rem- he reminds us of, uh, of God's righteousness, what God wants for us. He convicts us of sin. He testifies to Jesus. He continues to talk about Jesus. That's one of the ways in which you can know if what someone says the Holy Spirit is, is saying, whether or not it's true or not. Is it pointing people to Jesus? If so, it's the Holy Spirit. If not, it's something else. We don't need to be dealing with that. The Holy Spirit glorifies Jesus and lifts him up. The Holy Spirit sanctifies us and makes us more like Jesus. It sets apart, he sets apart our lives for us. I keep on struggling with it and he. It's a he. Uh, The Holy Spirit is a he. Uh, The Holy Spirit produces fruit in us. Galatians 5, that wonderful passage about the fruit of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit reveals Christ in us. He helps us to put sin to death. And he guides us into all truth. So the Holy Spirit is constantly at work. You can see, man, that's just a partial list of the kinds of things that the Holy Spirit is constantly doing in the lives of believers all of the time. We know this must be God because there's no way a human could multitask anything like that all the time. Especially for us a lot of people, right? We are a mess. All right, so the gospel tells us, as as Nick preached to us last week, that that we are kept in him. That those that that, um, God has given to Jesus, that they will uh, in no way be cast out. They're not going to be plucked out of his hand. Holy Spirit helps keep our salvation going. So you know that if you are ever compelled to read your Bible or you love someone, even though you kind of have to grit your teeth and do it, or you freely worship God like we just saw those those kids uh, doing in that in that video is so awesome. You know that you're not alone, that the Holy Spirit is at work in you, renovating your life and making you more like Jesus. Second point of application I want to make sure we make is this. God wakens his church through his word. That's part of why this book is here. Jude's message is here to wake up a sleepy church. And we do have infiltrators in the church at large who have come in and who have begun to teach in our Western churches things that are, run counter to what the Bible tells us. People who ask, did God really say? Did God really say those things? People who act like sin really isn't sin. Antinomians who say, this is okay. I'm saved by grace. I have every right to be bitter. Can you see what they've done to me? I can get drunk all I want. I'm saved by grace, right? It's all under the blood. I can do what I want with my body. Or this is my money. I can spend it how I want to. 
1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20 reminds us that we are not our own. We are bought with a price. That price is the body and blood of our Lord Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 15 says, For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Can you see that connection? Often we talk about how Jesus died for us. And that is true. He he died vicariously for us. And yet there's an aspect of our salvation that we miss. The fact that Jesus died taking our old lives to the grave. We're not supposed to live those old lives anymore. Jesus died. He took that old life with him. For our sake, he died and was raised so that we no, no longer might live for ourselves. It's the purpose that Jesus died. He didn't just die to save us from hell. He died to save us into a new life in which we follow him in obedience. The church in the West needs a mighty awakening, more than just a tap on the table that we're sleeping on. We need a work of the Holy Spirit to do sanctification in our hearts so that we believe that God is as big as he says he is in his word and that our prayer life would be revitalized. We would begin to trust him in ways that we haven't before, that we would have a commitment to evangelize the lost, that we would see hell as a real thing, that we would see God desiring to save people, that we would commit ourselves to the work of making sure that they hear the message that our commitment to sacrificially love one another would be radically revitalized. We need to remember, church, that we are not our own. We don't live for ourselves. I'm going to ask the the, uh, communion team to go ahead and head this way. And Nick is going to come in just a moment. But I want us to understand that communion is a reminder that we don't live for ourselves. Everything that we have in our lives as a believer was bought with a price. And that price was the body and blood of our Lord Jesus. What an awesome thing to remember together. Will you pray with me? Lord, we thank you so much for this word from Jude. Lord, so many of the things that hit us in this passage are strange. And yet it's clear that you do judge those who walk apart from you. Lord, you warn us to stay close to you and to exhort one another daily and Lord you remind us also that we need to be at at, at looking around at times to make sure that we are not falling prey to false teaching that is encouraging us to trust in things other than your word and is encouraging us to ignore the things that your word so clearly teaches us we pray Lord that that same Holy Spirit would guide and direct us into all truth Lord, that you would convict us of sin, that you would keep us together, that you would help us to continue to walk in righteousness. And we do pray that you would send that mighty awakening uh, to to our churches. Lord, we pray that you would use four points in some small way, Lord, to accomplish that work of revitalizing your church. God, make us a church that, that helps to breathe life into other churches, even as you breathe life into us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.